Welcome to another Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. Salvation by Grace is the teaching ministry of Grace Christian Assembly, a Sovereign Grace Fellowship in Smyrna, Tennessee. You'll find us on the internet at salvationbygrace.org. We are currently studying the Apostle Paul's letters to the Ephesians and the Colossians. So grab your Bible and join the congregation of GCA, along with our teaching pastor, Jim McClarty.
song that you just heard is actually from a previous meeting here at GCA because at the moment I am standing in a completely empty room. I'm a fan of technology. Technology allows us to broadcast on the internet and to connect with people all over the world who we wouldn't otherwise be connected to. But sometimes technology is also the bane of my existence. And this morning is a good example of that. The recording from this morning did not record. I don't know if that was a technological error or if that was user error. But inasmuch as we are going verse by verse through the book of Colossians, I feel like every component is a vital part of the larger picture. So I don't like to leave sections out so that someday when people are online listening to the book as a series, there isn't suddenly a gap. And so here it is Sunday afternoon and I am once again standing at GCA with the microphone strapped on talking to an empty room. Last week, we left off in Colossians chapter 2, right around verse 10. And due to time constraints, I wasn't able to kind of dig down a little bit into what Paul was doing. I'm a big fan of the Apostle Paul. He is a very logical and very clever and sometimes very sarcastic fellow. And this one sentence that I want to begin by emphasizing is truly just a bit of genius. And in order to understand the genius of the statement, we have to be reminded again of Greek culture. In most Greek cities, you had various different temples to various different Greek gods. The Greeks held to a whole pantheon of gods. And in fact, sometimes they would build temples that were known as a pantheon like the temple to Zeus was a pantheon. The word pantheon means all gods. It's a combination of pan, all, and theos, god. And among their collection of gods, the Greeks believed in part of their mythology. They believed in both gods who were creator gods, gods like Zeus that were really truly deity. But then they also believed in demigods, and demigods were the result of gods cohabitating with human women and producing this race of part man, part god. Those were the demigods. So Greek mythology had a whole lot of various different both gods and demigods, and they had temples to the various different gods, and Paul is going to confront that culture in a single brilliant sentence. We're going to start reading at 2 Corinthians chapter 8. See to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception, through their own vanity by which they're willing to lie to you, and utilizing philosophy And the result of that can be these very intelligent-sounding erudite people can convince other people 
that what they are saying is correct. And Paul says that is a way of taking you captive. You become captivated by what they're saying. It appeals to your flesh. It makes you feel good about yourself. And so you are taken captive by it, either because it sounds right, it sounds intellectual, it sounds acceptable, and you are taken captive by this thing that is really just a vain lie. It is a empty deception. And so Paul says, see to it that you aren't held captive to it. By the time Paul reaches the end of this sentence, he's going to say that you need to be taken captive to Christ and Christ alone, and not to these philosophies, and not to this empty deception, because those philosophies and deceptions are according to the traditions of men. Their source, the reason for their development, was human thought. It comes from men. It doesn't come from God. It doesn't come from heavenly eternal truth. It comes from men creating things that were then passed down from person to person until they become tradition. And so these man-made philosophies, these empty lies, these traditions of men are according to the rudimentary principles, the elementary principles of this world. The prince of the power of the air has plenty of traditions, plenty of philosophies, plenty of lying deceptions, plenty of traditions that he wants to take you captive with. But those ideas are all according to the way the world works. Those are the rudiments of this fallen world. Those are the elementary principles that come along with the rulers of the darkness of this world. And they want to take you captive. Therefore, says Paul, don't become captive to it. See that no one takes you captive through philosophy, through empty deception, according to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of this world, rather than according to Christ. Several times Paul does this, where he lays out these enormous contrasts. And on one side, you've got something that's just simply vanity and deception, and according to the rudiments of this dark world, as compared to Christ, Christ himself. Christ, he then says, in this brilliant sentence in verse 9, in him dwells all the fullness of deity. To the Greeks, they would think that the fullness of deity, and perhaps not even the fullness, there may even be some gods or demigods that they were unaware of, which is why in Athens there would even be altars to an unknown god, just in case they missed one. But when they think about deity, they think about their gods and their demigods. And Paul, by way of contrast, says all of your idols, all of your so-called gods are empty, are vain, are the result of lying deception, are the result of clever-sounding philosophy and the rudiments of this world. 
and not according to Christ because in Christ the fullness of deity dwells and that means if you're looking for deity you're not going to find it in your idols in your temples that are made with hands you're not going to find it in carved out stones or wood they can't speak they can't move they can't talk they can't think but in Christ you will find the completion the entirety of genuine deity in bodily form so the Greek conception of deity was both gods and demigods both the gods of heaven and the gods who walked around here on earth among people Paul effectively satisfies both of those categories by saying that Jesus has all the fullness of deity in him which makes him the God of heaven the creator God but he is also here in bodily form he was here on the planet he walked and talked and ate and interacted with human beings with his creation that means that he is also the complete satisfaction of the concept of a demigod so regardless of which God you point to in the pantheon of gods available to Greek culture Jesus is the full satisfaction of everything you're looking for of everything that you need whether you're looking for the creator of heaven and earth well Jesus is right there he's the speaking agency through which everything was made and all things were made by him and for him and then if you're looking for a God who can also feel your feelings who can understand your emotions one who can interact with you on a personal level which is why the concept of demigods began well you're also going to find that in Jesus Christ because he was in bodily form he was a human being walking on the planet and therefore he also knows what it is to be tempted he knows what it is to have feelings what it is to be tired what it is to cry what it is to be hungry he knows what it is to even feel that sense of abandonment when he would cry out why have you forsaken me on the cross and so he knows every emotion that human beings have he knows the difficulties of the temptations of this life he knows what it is to be part of humanity thereby satisfying everything that the Greeks could expect from their demigods but he is also the creator God he is the highest God in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form an absolutely brilliant statement by Paul through which he undermined the entirety of the Greek pantheon and then he continues that sentence in verse 10 and says and in him in Christ you have been made complete in other words everything that you wanted your pantheon to do for you everything that inspired you to create these gods and these temples you'll actually find in Jesus Christ because you can't find it in idols made with hands you can't find it in temples made with human hands those are the construction of human beings of flesh and blood 
these are the rudimentary principles of this world, and it's ultimately just empty deception. You won't find satisfaction in any of the gods that you have created, but you will find that satisfaction and that completion in Christ Jesus. And so again, the contrast is the empty idols, the idols that cannot speak, cannot think, cannot move, cannot interact on your behalf, cannot comfort you, cannot come alongside, who cannot plead your case in the court of heaven. They can't do anything for you versus Jesus Christ in whom you are utterly complete. Everything you need to know in terms of philosophy, everything you need to know in terms of truth, everything you need to know that is created by God and handed down to men instead of the traditions of men, everything you need to know about the way heaven works as opposed to the rudimentary principles of this world, everything you need to get you to the eternity that God has planned for you is found in Jesus Christ and in him alone. The contrast is enormous. You either get empty idols who can do nothing for you, who lie to you through the vain philosophy and traditions of men by the rudiments of this world, or Christ. And in Christ, you're made complete. And as if that weren't enough, he is also the primary one. He is also the first one. He is the head over all rule and all authority. So whether we're talking about authority that men give to their handmade idols, whether we're talking about people going in and sacrificing and pleading to and praying to their handmade temples, whether we're talking about the traditions of men and the rudiments of this world, whether we're talking about the deception that goes on in this fallen world, no matter what you can think of, no matter what you point at, Christ is above it all. Every rule, every authority, he is the one that God authorized. Therefore, he has all authority, which is the very thing. When people would go into these temples and they would take their animals and they would take their sacrifices and they would do all of this because they were begging their gods to either bring rain, to stop droughts, to produce food, to protect them from their enemies, to keep the wild animals under control, to help them and restore them in their relationships in life. Whatever it was that they were going to their gods, whatever it was they were praying for and asking for, those gods could not produce it, and Christ can, not only because he's empathetic, to what it is to be human and go through what you go through. But he has the authority. He has the power. He has the rule over all those gods, over all those humans, over the entire world. He has all preeminence, and that's by the design of God. God the Father designed that every knee was going to bow and every tongue was going to confess that Jesus Christ is absolute Lord, Master, authority, ruler over everyone and everything. And so every knee is going to bow to him. 
So the contrast, again, that Paul is drawing is just absolutely enormous. The emptiness of Greek philosophy and Greek gods and the traditions of the Greeks, the elementary principles of Greek culture and the Greek world versus Christ who is actually all those things that you were searching for in the pantheon of empty gods. You get the empty, pointless gods, or you get Christ in whom you are complete. And that kind of brings us up to where I left off last week. But now Paul is going to bring up the question of circumcision. And if you don't know the history and the background of circumcision, then Paul's next couple of comments about circumcision and about baptism are going to be kind of confusing because Paul didn't feel at this moment like writing a treatise about circumcision because the audience that he was writing to, both Jew and Gentile, were very aware of circumcision, especially physical circumcision. It was what identified the Jews as versus the Gentiles, which is why they are referred to as two groups, the circumcised and the uncircumcised. And therefore, because the entirety of his audience would be familiar with circumcision and how that separates the two groups, he didn't have to write anything about the background, the history of circumcision. He could just mention it and then keep teaching in order to demonstrate the fullness, the completion of what we find in Christ. So for the remainder of the morning, or for the remainder of this afternoon now, for the remainder of this message, we're going to be talking about circumcision. And again, reviewing exactly what circumcision is and how Paul's attitude towards circumcision is diametrically different from the Moses law concept of circumcision. And what happened? How could Paul advance this theology of freedom in Christ and no need, no necessity for circumcision when from the beginning in the Old Testament, circumcision wasn't a choice. It was an absolute requirement among the Jews, among the seed of Abraham. And then Paul, speaking to Gentiles, says it's no longer a requirement. Something happened. Some major transition happened there that took us from the necessity of circumcision all the way over to, no, in fact, if you are circumcised, Christ profits you nothing. And that's an enormous contrast again. So how did that transition happen from requirement to this will get you responsible to the whole of the law? You have fallen from grace. Christ is no help to you if you're circumcised. How does that happen? So the best place to start, as always, is at the beginning. The Greek word that we translate as circumcised literally means to cut around. Peritome is the word. And it means the same thing as the English word circumcise. They both mean to cut around. For instance, circum, just like 
circumnavigate, or just like circumference, the outside around a circle. And also, the size part of the word is still something that we use to this very day. If a doctor is cutting into somebody, he says that he is making an incision. And so you combine those two concepts, circumcision, and that means to cut around. It means to literally cut around when we're talking about physical circumcision. To understand the beginning of circumcision as a physical requirement, we have to go back to Genesis 17, and I'm going to start reading at verse 7, and read all the way to verse 14. God speaking says to Abraham, I will establish my covenant between me and you and your descendants after you throughout their generations as an everlasting covenant to be a God to you and to your descendants. Literally, that word is sperma, it's seed. Your descendants, your seed after you. And I will give to you and to your seed after you the land where you live as a stranger, all the land of Canaan, as an everlasting possession. And I will be their God. God said further to Abraham, Now as for you, you shall keep my covenant, you and your seed, your descendants after you, throughout their generations. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male among you will be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskin, and it shall be a sign of a covenant between me and you. Okay, a couple important things. When we're talking about physical circumcision, physical cutting around, we know exactly what's being cut around and what flesh is being removed from the body. We also know that this is a sign of a covenant between God and the descendants of Abraham. And that is why it was so important and remains important that the descendants of Abraham are circumcised. It is a sign of that everlasting covenant throughout their generations. And every male among you who is eight days old shall be circumcised throughout your generations, including a slave who is born in the house or who is bought with money from a foreigner who is not of your descendants. A slave who is born in your house and who is bought with your money shall certainly be circumcised. So my covenant shall be in your flesh as an everlasting covenant. This is something you're just going to keep on doing. It's an everlasting covenant, and therefore the sign of the covenant doesn't change. All of your descendants need to be circumcised. But as for an uncircumcised male, one who is not circumcised, in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people because he has broken my covenant. So it's just as plain as it can be. All the descendants of Abraham, this is not a suggestion, this is a directive from God, all of the male descendants of Abraham need to be circumcised in the foreskin of their flesh, and if they are not, they're to be cut off from the people because they have broken the everlasting covenant between Abraham and God. 
And Abraham took that seriously. And when his sons were born, he circumcised them on the eighth day. In fact, in the book of Acts, chapter 7 and verse 8, we even read Luke recounting that fact. He writes, and he gave him, that's God gave Abraham, the covenant of circumcision. And so Abraham fathered Isaac and circumcised him on the eighth day. And Isaac fathered Jacob and Jacob the 12 patriarchs. The point being that all Israelites fall under the heading of the everlasting covenant that was made between God and Abraham. And therefore, all of his seed, all of his descendants are required to be circumcised in the flesh of their foreskin. And then that directive became part of the law of Moses. So not only is it a sign of the covenant, it is also part of the Mosaic Sinai covenant. It is a directive given to all the descendants of Abraham that they continue by law in the circumcision practice. Leviticus 12, starting at verse 1 and reading to verse 3, says... Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel. In other words, tell them this. Tell them that this is what I direct. Saying, When a woman gives birth and delivers a male child, then she shall be unclean for seven days, as she is in the day of her menstruation, and she will be unclean. Then on the eighth day, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. So now we understand why it's on the eighth day. So that practice, because it identified a particular people from all the non-Jewish people in the whole world, it identified the people of Yahweh on planet Earth, and it was codified in the law of Moses. And they continued doing it all the way up until the Egyptian captivity, and through that captivity, but then when Moses delivered them out of Egypt, he took them in a relatively short matter of time to the very borders of the promised land. And they, afraid to just go barrel housing into the promised land, they sent spies into the promised land who went in and checked it out and came back and gave a report on the land. And they said, yes, it's everything God said it was. It is a land flowing with milk and honey, but there's also giants. And we saw ourselves as grasshoppers in their eyes, and therefore the people of God were not willing to go and take the land because they were afraid of the giants in the land. As a consequence, their lack of faith led to 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. During that 40 years, the first generation of people who came out of Egypt, especially all the men of war, all the grown men, all died in the wilderness. All the ones who, when they left Egypt, were less than 20 years old, they survived that 40 years in the wilderness, at least some of them, but they also had children while they were in the wilderness, and those children were not circumcised. And so, when it came time for Joshua to lead the children of Israel into the land of promise, he was directed by God to once again begin circumcision. That's how important it is to God. Before he would deliver Israel into their promised land, he made sure that they were all circumcised in their flesh 
And this is the directive that he gave to Joshua. This is Joshua 5, starting in verse 2. At that time, the Lord said to Joshua, Make for yourself flint knives and circumcise again the sons of Israel the second time. Now, he isn't saying those who have already been circumcised, circumcise them again. Instead, what he's saying is, once upon a time, Israelites knew that they needed to be circumcised. But after 40 years in the wilderness, the sons of Israel have stopped doing that. So now, restore that practice of circumcising the uncircumcised descendants, the seed of Abraham. So Joshua made himself a flint knife, and he circumcised the sons of Israel at Gibeath Ha'aroloth. This is the reason why Joshua circumcised them. All the people who came out of Egypt, who were males, all the men of war, died in the wilderness along the way after they came out of Egypt. For all the people who came out were circumcised, but all the people who were born in the wilderness along the way as they came out of Egypt had not been circumcised. For the sons of Israel walked 40 years in the wilderness until all the nation, that is, the men of war who came out of Egypt, perished because they did not listen to the voice of the Lord, to whom the Lord had sworn that he would not let them see the land which the Lord had sworn to their fathers to give us, a land flowing with milk and honey. So their children, whom they raised up in that place, Joshua circumcised. For they were uncircumcised because they had not circumcised them along the way. Okay, so what do we know so far? We know that part of the Abrahamic covenant was that Abraham was going to physically circumcise all of his seed, all of his descendants. Then we know that that rule of circumcision for Abraham's seed was codified in the law of God. It was continued, because it is an everlasting covenant, it was continued then before the children of Israel went into the promised land. And therefore it was continued by Israel in the promised land. But, and here's where it gets really interesting, physical circumcision sort of prefigured a more important spiritual reality. You'll notice that throughout the directive that God gave to Abraham, and then the recitation of the necessity of circumcision in the law of Moses, and even to Joshua, there was no point at which God ever explained the why of it. Why are you circumcising? He just simply said, do it. Do it because I said so. Do it because it's a sign of the covenant, the agreement between you and me. So do it. But it turns out that God had a larger plan in mind, and that circumcision, once everybody was familiar with it, could also be used to demonstrate spiritual realities about the hardness of the hearts of the people of Israel. In fact, right in the law, in Deuteronomy 10.16, Moses wrote, Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart, and be no more stiff-necked. These were faithless, stiff-necked, hard-hearted people. 
And so Moses gives them a directive. Since they understand the whole concept of cut around, he says, cut around not your physical outward foreskin, but cut around the foreskin that lays around your heart, that fleshliness of your heart that is keeping you stiff-necked and rebellious. You have to extricate that from you and be no more stiff-necked. But then Moses also recognizes the impossibility of telling stiff-necked, hard-hearted, rebellious people with hard heads and hard hearts, it's impossible to tell them to fix themselves. And so a mere 20 chapters later, same book, Deuteronomy, in Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 6, Moses explains, And the Lord thy God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your seed. To love the Lord your God with all your heart and with your soul so that you may live. So it went from a directive that just like the whole rest of the law, the people of Israel could not do it. All the law could do was hold them guilty. All the law could do was demonstrate their failure to live up to God's righteous standard. And part of the law, part of the Deuteronomical law, was to circumcise the foreskin of your heart and stop being stiff-necked. But they couldn't do it because ultimately nobody can do the law. As I said, all the law can do is condemn you. And so Moses includes that the Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the heart of your children. Anyone whose heart is cut away at, anyone whose hard heart, stony heart, is replaced with a heart of flesh, anybody who goes through that internal spiritual change, it's got to be God who is the actor. It has to be God who is the worker. God is the one who accomplishes it. It simply cannot be the individual human being. As I have said so many times, and now we'll say again, the answer to your problem where sin is concerned, the answer to your problem can't be you. You can't solve the dilemma between you and God. God has to solve that. And the Lord God will circumcise your heart and the heart of your seed. And what is going to be the result? What are the consequences of God circumcising your heart? He will circumcise your heart to love the Lord your God with all your heart. So instead of being hard-hearted against God, God is going to change your heart. God is going to cut around your heart. Cut the fleshliness of your heart off so that you can love the Lord your God with all your heart. The capability to love God and to love him with all your heart has to be a gift of God. God has to be the one who works on you, who chisels away at your hard heart. He has to be the actor in order for you to be able to love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, so that you may live. 
That piece of very sovereign grace theology is found right there in the Deuteronomical law. Because from the beginning, God has never intended that salvation was going to be a result of keeping the law of Moses. He always knew that he was going to have to intervene on behalf of his people in order to make them capable of doing the things that he requires from them. But that idea is not only in the law, it's also in the prophets. For instance, Jeremiah 4.4 says, circumcise yourselves to the Lord. If you just read that phrase out of context, you would think that he's just talking about the physical circumcision that is part of the covenant that was given to Abraham. But then he defines the kind of circumcision he's talking about. Circumcise yourselves to the Lord and take away the foreskins of your heart, you men of Judah and you inhabitants of Jerusalem. Lest my fury come forth like fire and burn so that none can quench it because of the evil of your doings. Okay, so once again, we see these enormous contrasts that you find throughout the Bible. God is going to come in his fury. His fury and his anger against sin burns like an unquenchable fire because of the evil of the doings of the children of Israel. And therefore, a change, genuine repentance is necessary to avoid the wrath of God. And so Jeremiah directs them, circumcise yourselves to the Lord. Take away the foreskins of your heart, you men of Judah. You have to be changed. You have to be changed internally. And of course, we know from Moses in Deuteronomy 30, verse 6, that it is God who has to do the actual circumcising work. So the options are the absolute wrath of God or God changes your heart. Either way, God is the actor. Either way, you are the one who is acted upon. What you want, what you need, what you desire is that God change you from the inside, which, by the way, hearkening back to something I said a half hour ago, the Greek pantheon of gods can't do. They cannot inhabit you on a spiritual level and change your heart so that you will love Yahweh with all your heart and with all your soul and so that you will live and not just live here on the planet but that you will live eternally in God's presence. There are no other gods that can accomplish that for you. Only through Jesus Christ is this kind of change possible for you. The alternative to God doing that is the wrath and the fury, the unquenchable wrath of God. So I think you can see the necessity of this change of heart. This circumcision of the heart was just as much a requirement in Old Testament times as was the circumcision of the flesh. The circumcision in the flesh was an outward example, an outward teaching tool, an outward necessity for all the children of Abraham. But it also foreshadowed a reality of God changing their hearts, cutting away at their flesh, and making them capable of loving him ultimately with all their heart and with all their soul. 
which, by the way, is what Jesus said is the greatest commandment. You'll love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, your strength, and the second is like it. You'll love your neighbor as yourself. That's an impossibility if you have a hard heart and a stiff neck. It is only if God changes you from the inside that you have any possibility of accomplishing that. Ezekiel 44.9 says, Thus says the Lord God, No stranger, uncircumcised in heart, nor uncircumcised in flesh, shall enter my sanctuary, or any stranger that is among the children of Israel. So in that verse, God made a direct link between circumcision of the heart and circumcision of the flesh. And he said in no uncertain terms that if you are not circumcised in the flesh and the heart, unless you have that outward physical change, which would make you a descendant of Abraham, you'd have to then be genealogically part of Israel. But it's not good enough to just be genealogically part of the descendants of Abraham. An inward change has to happen to you. Your heart also has to be changed. So you see both the type and the antitype here in Ezekiel 44.9. And God goes so far as to say, unless you have both the physical change and the internal change, you cannot enter my sanctuary or any stranger that is among the children of Israel is not going to be allowed in my sanctuary. Okay, so that is, I think I've beaten this point now, that is the necessity in the Old Testament. Whether it's the Abrahamic covenant, whether it's the law of Moses, whether it's the prophet speaking, circumcision is an absolute necessity. There's no way around it. So naturally then, if that's the case, you can see why there would be this debate that grew up between the Jews regarding the Gentiles and regarding whether the Gentiles need to be circumcised to be part of the church. After all, it's a Jewish Messiah. After all, it's the Jewish God. And since the Jewish God requires circumcision, if Gentiles are coming to faith in the Jewish God, well, then, of course, they would think, that it's a necessity that they be circumcised. And that debate raged in the early church and to some degree still rages to this very day. And we see a couple of examples, several, in the New Testament of that debate. For instance, in Acts 15, verses 1 and 2, some men came down from Judea, from Jerusalem, and they were teaching the brothers, that would be the Gentile brothers, saying, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. And of course they would think that. That's what the scriptures say. And so of course they would think that. And of course they would think that it has to be a requirement. And that's so very common even to this very day, as I said. Jesus, yes. Jesus as your Savior, yes. Son of God, Messiah, you need him, yes. But then you also need some Moses. You also need to apply some of the Mosaic law in order for you to be saved. In other words, it's Jesus plus something. Jesus plus 
anything else keeping the law circumcision tithing keeping the Sabbath there are a great many things that come directly from the law that people try to impose on the conscience of believing Gentile Christians to this very day but that harkens back to the earliest church some men came down from Judea and they were teaching the brothers saying unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses you cannot be saved and after engaging these men in sharp debate Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some other believers to go up to Jerusalem to see the Apostles and the elders there about this question that's the reason why Paul and Barnabas along with some others went up to Jerusalem was to debate the question of Gentile circumcision and you can understand why it was such a fierce debate and in fact Paul engaged in a sharp debate with those Judaizers who wanted to make Gentile believers be circumcised and Paul for his part refused physical circumcision for Gentiles you're probably familiar with the book of Galatians so much of the book of Galatians is about that very debate and it's about the fact that some had come down from James from the Judaizers from Jerusalem and they were telling the believing Gentiles in Galatia that they needed to be circumcised and Paul saved some of his most adamant words some of his most you'll excuse the term cutting words for them because they didn't understand what I'm planning to explain later in this message Paul refused physical circumcision for the Gentiles we're going to start reading at Galatians 5 we're going to read the first 11 verses when Paul says very adamantly it was for freedom that Christ set us free therefore keep standing firm and do not be subject again to the yoke of slavery well what is that yoke of slavery if we're free from that yoke what is the yoke that Paul says we are free from verse 2 look I Paul tell you that if you have yourselves circumcised Christ will be of no benefit to you Wow there's a big contrast Christ is the only way to be saved in Christ through Christ through the finished work of Christ through the intermediary agency of Christ through his death for sin through Christ we are saved and then Paul in utter contrast to everything that we've read in the Old Testament about the absolute necessity to be circumcised says that if you Gentiles have yourselves circumcised as an attempt to justify yourself before God because you have believed the Judaizers because they have said yes Jesus but you also need circumcision to be saved if that's what you believe and as a result you have yourself circumcised Christ in whom all salvation dwells Christ will be of no benefit to you but wait it gets worse and I testify again to every man who has himself circumcised 
that he is obligated to keep the whole law. Now we have some indication of what Paul considers the yoke of slavery. It's the whole law. And any man who begins down the road of attempting to justify himself by the law of Moses, remember that is what the Judaizers had said. You need to be circumcised in keeping with the dictates, the law of Moses. And so if you start down the road of justification via Moses, well, then you're obligated to keep every bit of the law. And as we know from the book of James, if you miss the law in any one point, you're guilty of the whole law. So if you're going to try to justify yourself according to the law of Moses, and then you miss in any one point, you're guilty of the entirety of the law, and you're going to be judged by the entirety of the law, and Christ, therefore, is no benefit to you. I testify again to every man who has himself circumcised that he is obligated to keep the whole law, but then look as a result of trying to justify yourself by the law, you have become severed, separated from Christ, you who are seeking to be justified by the law, and you have fallen from grace. So not only is the finished, satisfactory, substitutionary work of Christ no benefit to you, but the same way that you severed yourself from your foreskin, you are now severed away from Christ. And you've fallen out from under the protective covering of grace. This, by the way, is the only place in the Bible where you find the phrase, fallen from grace. And the context tells you what it means. You are truly, genuinely fallen out from under grace if you are trying to justify yourself according to the law of Moses. And if you take even the first steps to begin that process of being sanctified by the law of Moses, you are then required to keep the entirety of the law and Jesus can't help you and grace can't help you and you're going to be judged by the fury and the unquenchable flame of God's justice. And you don't want that. So again, there's the contrast. Justification through Moses and keeping the law versus Christ and grace and salvation by grace through faith in his finished work. The contrast is absolutely enormous. For we, says verse 5, for we, through the Spirit, by faith, are waiting for the hope of righteousness. For in Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. The only thing that means anything is faith working through love. That's how we look forward to the hope of our imputed righteousness, the righteousness of Christ given to us. We confidently expect toward that whether we're circumcised or not whether we're Jew or Gentile, because circumcision or uncircumcision doesn't mean anything. Only faith working through love means anything. Okay, now hold it and think about it. Think about 
Paul, who was, as he listed his credits, he said that he was circumcised on the eighth day. That that makes him a descendant of Abraham, and as touching the law, he was a Pharisee. A Hebrew of the Hebrews, studied at the feet of Gamaliel. He was about as Hebrew and Jewish and descendant of Abraham as you get. So he knew the requirement of circumcision. And yet, here he is saying, neither circumcision or uncircumcision means anything. How does he do that? On what basis does Paul go from the necessity, the absolute necessity. If you're uncircumcised, says Ezekiel, you can't even be in the presence, in the temple, in the sanctuary of God. And yet here you've got Paul saying, circumcision means nothing, uncircumcision means nothing. How does he make that transition? How does he go from necessary to unnecessary? While continuing to read in verse 7, you were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion to not follow after the truth, this persuasion did not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. I have confidence in you in the Lord that you will adopt no other view. But the one who is disturbing you will bear his punishment, whoever he is. Jew or Gentile, Pharisee or sent from the Pharisees, no matter who he is, if he's disturbing you Gentiles into believing that you have to follow the law of Moses in order to be saved, well, then he is going to bear his punishment. But as for me, brothers and sisters, if I still preach circumcision, why am I still persecuted? In other words, why are the Jews arguing with me and debating with me if we're both on the same side of this argument? If we're both advocating for circumcision, then there's no argument. It is the very fact that I stand my ground that there is no necessity of circumcision for the Gentiles that is the very cause, the very reason for why there is this heated debate between me and the Jews. If I still preach circumcision, if that's part of what I've taught you, if that's a necessity, then why am I being persecuted by these Jews? What I've taught you, the truth, is diametrically different than what they're telling you. And if that's the case, then the stumbling block of the cross, which was a stumbling block to the Jews, and that, the stumbling block of the cross, has been completely eliminated if both they and I are preaching circumcision. And then he says, in this rather, you'll excuse the phrase, cutting remark, rather sarcastic remark, this is one of the reasons I like Paul, I wish that those who were troubling you, the NASB says, would even emasculate themselves. I introduced you earlier to the word peritome, which means to cut around. This Greek word is katatome. It means cut off completely, not just around, but just chop it off. And I wish that those who were troubling you, since they're so fond of their theology of cutting, I wish that they would just 
cut it off and be done with it. I wish that those who were troubling you would even emasculate themselves. Okay, so here's another example of Pauline theology. It's not just Galatia. It's not just Colossae. It's also in Rome. It's also in Corinth. This is a vital element of all Pauline theology to the Gentiles. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, starting at verse 17, we read, Only as the Lord has assigned to each one, as God has called each one, in this way let him walk. And so I direct to all the churches. Was any man called when he was already circumcised? Well, then he's not to become uncircumcised. I'm not completely certain how you accomplish that, but Paul's point is nothing needs to change. If you were already circumcised among the Jews when you were called to Christ, well, then that's fine. Stay that way. Has anyone been called in uncircumcision? He's not to be circumcised because circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. But what matters is the keeping of the commandments of God. Interesting, because if you go back to the commandments of God via Moses, you find the command of circumcision. And yet here you have Paul saying that the commandments of God include staying the way you are when you were called to Christ. Circumcision, uncircumcision, none of that matters. Don't make a change in your body in order to come to Christ. The commandment of God then that I think he's referring to here is the same as when Jesus was asked by the Pharisees, what work must we do to work the works of God? And he says, this is the work of God that you would believe on him whom God has sent. So the command of God is follow after Christ. And I think that's what Paul is driving at. Meanwhile, over in the book of Romans, Romans chapter 2, verse 29, he's speaking very specifically to the Jews as a group, as in contrast to the Gentiles. And he says, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly. And the circumcision is of the heart. By the Spirit, the Holy Spirit of God, not by the letter. That means not by the letter of the law. And his praise, the praise of that individual person, that one who has been changed inwardly by God, his praise isn't from people. So it doesn't matter if people are lifting you up and praising or glorifying you, which was something that the Pharisees were chasing after all the time which is why they would blow a trumpet before they would put money in the treasury, which is why they would make long prayers and extend their phylacteries and pray on the street corners so that other people would praise them. Paul says that a Jew who has been changed inwardly. Now, if you're talking about a Jew, you're talking about one who has been cut around physically. He's been physically circumcised because he is a descendant of Abraham. But remember that Ezekiel said that there has to be a circumcision in the flesh and in the heart. And so Paul says that's what a true, completed, actual Jew is. He is a Jew who is one inwardly. And circumcision is of the heart 
by the Spirit and not by the letter, and his praise is not from people, but from God. So, as I mentioned earlier, how do we account for this change? It's an enormous change. And even though the type antitype is laid out back in the Deuteronomical law, the continuing necessity of physical circumcision among all the sons of Abraham continues unabated to this very day. The law of Moses included it, and it is a sign of the covenant between God and the descendants of Abraham. And yet you've got Paul talking to Gentiles and saying circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. What changed? What happened between those two contrasting theologies? Well, what happened was Christ. Christ came, Christ died, Christ resurrected. And at that point was the inception of the new covenant. Now here at GCA, for the last 20 years, I have talked a great deal about the new covenant. But again, this is one of those moments when we can only understand the transition theologically by understanding the old covenant and the new covenant. If you don't understand the new covenant, so much of the Bible is confusing to you. If you don't understand the new covenant, then it's going to be easy for people to take you back to Moses and tell you that you have to be justified according to some amount of the rules in the law. If you don't understand that you're not under the old covenant, but under the new covenant, only then do you have the freedom that Paul says, Christ has set us free. And we're to stand unmoved, unwavering in that freedom where Christ has set us free from the letter of the law. Importantly, the law of Moses had a beginning at Mount Sinai, but it also has an end. And I contend that it ended when Christ abolished the law, nailing it to his tree and taking it out of the way. And not only do I contend that, but that's what the Bible says. That's what Paul says. The law was established with particular people to form a covenant between God and them. But the new covenant, very importantly, is not based on the law of Moses. It is not a recapitulation of the law of Moses. It is not a re-ratification of some elements of the law of Moses. It's based on salvation by grace through faith in Jesus Christ and his finished work. In other words, as we have been talking all along, there is this contrast that exists between the Old Covenant and the New Covenant, and they are not one and the same. They are diametrically different. The same way that Paul said, if you go down the road of trying to keep the law of Moses for justification, then you're no part of Christ. Christ is no benefit to you, and you will fall in from grace. That is diametrical difference. You're either approaching God and looking for justification by the law of Moses, the old covenant, or through Christ, the new covenant. It's one or the other, but it's never 
both. And where do we find the introduction of this new covenant? Well, it's hinted at in Isaiah, but it's laid out in a more complete form in the book of Jeremiah. It's in Jeremiah 31. Now, importantly, as part of getting your Israelology correct, you'll notice that the new covenant is made very specifically with the house of Judah, the southern kingdom, and the house of Israel, the northern kingdom. Collectively, all 12 tribes who are the recipients of the Moses covenant, who are the descendants of the Abrahamic covenant, the ones who bear circumcision in their bodies. That particular people is the group of people that God made the Sinai covenant with. And therefore, because that old covenant never actually achieved righteousness for anybody, and it never achieved salvation for anybody, Nobody was ever capable of approaching God on the basis of the law of Moses. Not, as Paul says in Romans 7, not because the law was wrong, the law was good, the law was holy, the law was right, but because of the weakness of human beings and the sinfulness of human beings rendering them utterly incapable of being able to approach God on the basis of their own earned righteousness via the law of Moses. Therefore, if God was going to save anybody, he couldn't do it through that particular covenant. That covenant had already demonstrated that all it could do was condemn people. It could only hold them guilty, but it could not save. It didn't have a mechanism in it that could achieve a permanent forgiveness and taking away of the sins of God's people. Therefore, a new covenant, qualitatively new, a different type of covenant was necessary in order to save the people that God intended to save. But again, importantly, as much as we love the new covenant and as much as we understand that our salvation as uncircumcised Gentiles is absolutely built on and necessitated by the new covenant or is reliant on the new covenant. That new covenant that is saving us was made with the house of Israel and the house of Judah. And in fact, that is such an important concept that the longest verbatim quote from the Old Testament transported into the New Testament is found in Hebrews 8, which is a Hebrew, a descendant of Abraham, writing to Hebrews, other descendants of Abraham, that long quote is a recitation of the new covenant. And he quotes it exactly the same way as we're about to read it here in Jeremiah. It is made to the house of Israel and the house of Judah. So the writer of the book of Hebrews is even encouraging Hebrew believers that the new covenant belongs to Israel and Judah. And we, as recipients of astounding grace, we are welcomed into the family of God via this new covenant, which was established by Christ at the cross. Okay, let's read. I'm going to start reading at verse 27. This is Jeremiah 31. Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will sow the house of Israel and the house of Judah with the seed of man 
and with the seed of beast. In other words, offspring of men and offspring of beasts. I'm going to make them an even greater amount of men who own all these various animals. It's going to come about that as I watched over them to pluck up and break down and overthrow and destroy and to bring disaster, all of which God actually did, and he takes credit for all of it and says the history of Israel is that I have plucked them up out of their homeland. I have broken them down. I have broken down their walls. I've broken down their temple. I've overthrown them. I've destroyed them and brought them to utter disaster as their enemies have been brought in to conquer them. And the same way that I did all that, so I will watch over them to build and to plant, declares the Lord. The same way that I punished them for not performing according to the law of Sinai, the law of Moses, because they were hard-hearted and stiff-necked, I broke them down and I destroyed them and I scattered them and I brought disaster to them. And the same way that I did that, I'm also now going to build them up and I'm going to plant them. I'm going to establish them. Well, how? How is he going to do that? He can't do it by the Moses covenant. History has already proven that the Moses covenant was unkeepable by these hard-hearted people. So how can God promise them, I am going to restore you, I am going to plant you, I am going to build you up again. He cannot do it by imposing the law of Moses back on them. That has already not worked. Verse 29, in those days they will not say again, the fathers have eaten sour grapes and the children's teeth are set on edge. In other words, children are going to have to suffer the consequences of what their fathers did. And so this adage, the fathers will eat sour grapes and the children's teeth are going to be set on edge. It's just another way of saying that the children are going to pay for the choices that the fathers made. And that's the way that God has dealt with Israel up until that time in so very many ways, causing them to be punished generation after generation because of things that actually their forefathers did. Verse 30, but everyone's going to die for their own iniquity. Each man individually who eats sour grapes, his teeth are going to be set on edge. So now God is going to begin punishing individual people according to their own individual deeds and the children are no longer going to pay for the sins of their fathers. That's all that that means. Then starting in verse 31, behold, days are coming. Okay, so it's not these days. As Jeremiah is writing this, Judah is in the Babylonian captivity. The northern tribes have been scattered via the Assyrian captivity and have not returned to their land, which they still haven't to this very day. And yet there is this day coming when God is going to build them up and plant them. A day when every man is going to be responsible for himself. And when that day comes, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel with the house of Judah. Well, of course, it would have to be with those people. They're the ones who were under the old covenant. If you're talking to Gentiles, 
They were never under the Old Covenant. They weren't at Mount Sinai. They didn't follow Moses. And so you cannot say to the Gentiles, I will make a qualitatively new covenant with you because they're naturally going to say, new compared to what? How is this new? And what is old? And so God designates the particular people who he is speaking to. They are the house of Israel and the house of Judah, the very people with whom he made the old covenant. Days are coming when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. And now it becomes even more specific that that's who he's talking to because verse 32 says, not like the covenant which I made with their fathers on the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt. My covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them. So even though God protected them and delivered them and acted as a covering, as a husband to them, they nevertheless broke the covenant that he made with them. That would be the Moses covenant. And we know that it's the Moses Sinai covenant because it's the covenant that God made with the fathers of Israel on the day that he took them by the hand and brought them out of the land of Egypt. The language just could not be more specific. But, verse 33, but now that he's introduced the idea of a new, qualitatively new, different covenant, this will be the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and on their heart I will write it. Now you can see why all the way back when the law was being given the first time in the Deuteronomical law, in that repetition of the law, you can see why Moses said that of necessity, God is going to have to cut away at their heart, cut around their heart, remove their stony heart, give them a heart of flesh. All of that changing and fixing your heart stuff is so that God can write his law, his expectations on their hearts, not on stones external to them, but on the tablet of their heart, which is within them. That is part of the new covenant made specifically with the people who had the original covenant and the original law, which was written on external tablets of stone. Part of the newness of the new covenant is, I'm going to write my law inside them, and on their heart I will write it, and I will be their God, and they will be my people. And then you may ask, well, so how far-reaching is this new covenant? Verse 34 says, and they shall not teach again every man his neighbor, and each man his brother, saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me. From the least of them to the greatest of them, declares the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. How does he accomplish that? Through Christ. Through the finished sacrificial work of Christ. Christ is written large in this new covenant. And in fact, the writer of Hebrews says, that that new covenant, that will and testament of Christ, went into effect at his death. And so it is at Mount 
Calvary and not Mount Sinai, that the new covenant went into effect at the death of Christ, thereby paying the sin penalty, ransoming all of God's people so that he could declare that via this new covenant, he would forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. And I just got to say, amen and hallelujah. I mean, really, how wonderful is that news? But as I've been emphasizing continually, that new covenant is made with the house of Judah and the house of Israel. It's very exclusive. It's to the people who were actually under the old covenant. So then what about Gentiles? How are the uncircumcised going to be saved? Well, Paul answers that question as part of his New Testament, New Covenant theology, where the uncircumcised Gentiles are concerned. How do they become part of the community of Israel among whom is this new covenant of salvation by grace through faith, through the finished work of the Jewish Messiah, through the finished atoning work of Christ? How do Gentiles also get included in that, considering that the promise is made to the house of Judah and the house of Israel? Ephesians 2, starting at verse 11, Therefore remember that previously you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who are called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision which is performed in the flesh by human hands Paul is referring to the actual physical outward circumcision that was a requirement for all the descendants of Abraham and that group the circumcision group would look at the Gentiles and call them the uncircumcision so you were called the uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, you know, that one that's performed in the flesh by human hands. Remember that you were, at that time, separate from Christ, excluded from the people of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of the promise. Which covenants of promise? Well, the very one we just read. The promise of a new covenant through which God would forgive sin, through which God would actually save people. But you uncircumcised Gentiles were strangers to all that. You had no part in the covenants of promise, and consequently you have no hope, and you were without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who previously were far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ, by the will of God, through the finished work of Christ, by the blood of Christ, we were brought near to God. That is just grace, 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 and nothing but grace. Paul did not say we decided it, or we chose it, or we implemented it, or we made it happen. But it is through the blood of Jesus Christ that we, who previously were far off, far away, we've now been brought. We've been brought. We didn't bring ourselves. We didn't decide it. We didn't determine it. We didn't do it. We were brought through the blood of Christ to be near to God. Verse 14, for he himself is our peace. And he made both groups, that would be the circumcised and the uncircumcised, 
he made both groups into one and broke down the barrier of that dividing wall that divided Jew from Gentile. And how did he do it? By abolishing in his flesh the hostility that existed between the circumcised and the uncircumcised. And what was that division between Jew and Gentile? What was that division that was causing hostility between the circumcised and the uncircumcised? He tells us very plainly, which is the law composed of commandments, 10 of them altogether, expressed in ordinances, 613 altogether, so that in himself he might make the two one new person. So that in himself, by himself, for his own glory, all things were made by him, through him, for him. They all redound to the glory of Christ. Now you can see why Paul is telling the Colossians, the answer to everything is Christ. Because he himself made of the two different, arguing, competitive, hostile people, he made one new person the Christian, the believer, the faithful. And in that way, he established peace between us and God. And that he might reconcile them both. The Jews and the Gentiles are now being reconciled to each other, brought into one body to God through the cross, through the finished work of Jesus, and by it, by the cross, he has put to death the hostility. And what was the cause of the hostility? The law composed of commandments and established in ordinances. Verse 17, and he came and he preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both, Jew and Gentile, circumcised, uncircumcised, through him we both have our access in one spirit to the Father. And that's the answer to the question. How is it that the Bible can go from circumcision is an absolute necessity over to Paul saying circumcision, uncircumcision is nothing. Christ is all that matters. Christ is the one who is reconciling us as one collective body to God through his cross. He's the one that put to death the hostility between the two groups. And so now you can see why when the Judaizers came to places like Galatia, though they followed Paul around all over the place, when they came and told Gentiles who had already received the Holy Spirit of God and told them, now you have to keep some amount of the law of Moses and you have to be circumcised. You can see why Paul said, I withstood them to their face. I didn't give them place, not for a minute, not for an hour. I would not put up with them trying to impose the law that saved nobody on people who God is already in the process of saving because whether circumcised or uncircumcised, whether far away or whether near, that means the far-off Gentiles or the nearby circumcised Jews, regardless, we are all as one body brought to God through him. He is our access. 
through that one Holy Spirit, that's how we have access to the Father. And so the circumcision, uncircumcision question is not a question of justification before God. It is a sign of the covenant of Abraham, which is why in Paul's thinking and overarching theology, when it came time to circumcise Timothy, who had been uncircumcised, Paul acquiesced and did circumcise him so he could take him into the temple because he had a Jewish mother that made him a descendant of Abraham. But when it came to Titus, who was a Gentile, he was not compelled to be circumcised. So Paul sees physical circumcision as a continuation of the everlasting covenant promise made to Abraham and his seed and his descendants. In no way is Paul trying to circumvent the Abrahamic covenant. However, in the question of justification and salvation, circumcision or any element of keeping the law is not the way you get to God because when Christ died, he nailed that law to his cross and he took it out of the way so that he could remove the hostility between the two groups forming one body, the church, and becoming the access through that single Holy Spirit to the Father. That's how we uncircumcised Gentiles get to God the Father. Again, the answer is Christ. The answer is always Christ. The answer is continually Christ. Whatever question you have theologically or about eternity or about the forgiveness of sin and justification, whatever question you have about redemption, the answer is always Christ. It always comes back to that. And at no point is the answer to your problems you. You cannot be the answer to your problems. Okay, with that as an introduction, go back to the book of Colossians. Colossians chapter 2, starting at verse 8, and I think now we can sum up and wrap up the entirety of this message. See to it that no one, whether that's a Greek with philosophy, whether that's gods and idols, whether that's demigods or part of the pantheon, whether that's a Jew telling you that you need to be circumcised and keep the law of Moses, see to it that no one takes you captive through philosophy and empty deception. According to the tradition of men, according to the elementary principles of this world, rather than according to, single word, Christ. For in him, in Christ, all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form. And in him, in Christ, you've been made complete. And he is the head over all rule and all authority. And in him, you were also circumcised. So even this promise that goes all the way back to the Deuteronomical law that God is going to circumcise hearts Paul now says it's Christ who's doing that work. In him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands. Not that physical outward circumcision, 
It's not a spiritual necessity that you have the outward circumcision. Now, I know that a great many people, and this morning I was actually asked this after service, I was asked, well, what about the fact that I, I am circumcised? I was circumcised as an infant in the hospital. That decision here in the 20th century is being made for health reasons. And of course, there's a great deal of debate in the medical world and on the internet about whether the health reasons are actually legitimate. And so we have a mixture of both circumcised and uncircumcised Gentiles in the world today. And that's fine, as long as you don't see it as a sign or a significance of your justification before God. What really matters is that you have this circumcision that is made without hands. It's not done by human beings. And what does that spiritual circumcision look like? In the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Having been, and he continues his thought, and this is where we're going to pick up next week, having been buried with him in baptism. And so part of this entire putting off of the flesh includes not only coming to faith and having this spiritual circumcision, but it also includes being buried with him in baptism and being raised up with him through faith. And that's what we will discuss next week as we talk about baptism and the importance of baptism and the necessity of baptism as a sign of obedience to the one who saved you. And now at this point, while there were still eyeballs that I was looking into, while I could still see the faces of the people I was preaching to, and as I could see that they were understanding and hopefully reassured and lifted up by this message, I said to them, if Jesus Christ is the single one who accomplished all of that, including the ultimate type antitype of circumcision and uncircumcision, the necessity of circumcision being completed in Christ circumcising your heart, then that is one more element of the fact that everything necessary for your full, complete salvation and redemption is accomplished in Christ. The answer to everything is Christ. The answer to this crazy, often stupid world is the return of Christ. The answer to how we rebellious, sinful people can ever stand justified, unblemished, unblameable before God. The only way that can happen, Christ, through Christ, through his finished work at the cross. The only answer to your idols, the only answer to all the things that you lift up and have confidence and faith in that you think can help you, these works of your own hands, these things that are of your own making that you then have confidence in, you need to turn from those and turn to the only true solution, Christ. No matter what the question is, the answer is Christ. You're going to find your hope. You're going to find your satisfaction. You're going to find your comfort. You're going to find your endurance through this world only in Christ.
And if he is, in fact, the one and the only one who has accomplished the forgiveness of sin on our behalf, if he is the one, the only one, who has reconciled us to the Father and given us this hope, this forward-looking expectation of everything that's to come, if he is the one who did all that, then you are saved not because of what you did, but because of what he did, and that means you are truly saved. Thank you for listening to this week's Salvation by Grace Sunday morning message. We encourage you to visit our website at salvationbygrace.org for books, Q&As, and our ever-expanding archive of audio sermons. And we invite you to join us next time when we gather around the Word and study the sovereign grace of God.